Scripture this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We read verses 1 through 13. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became white, radiant, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, because they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, just as it is written of him. This is God's word to his people. You may be seated. If you haven't already, I invite you to take a Bible, uh, one that you brought with you, or you can use the run, one that is in the rack of the pew in front of you, and turn it to the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is the second book in the New Testament, right toward the beginning. We're looking at chapter 9. This morning, actually, we're going to go from verse 1 all the way down to verse 29. There are two episodes or two encounters here, and they really serve to paint one consistent picture for us. And the picture is simply this. We'll start right out here at the beginning with the message of the passage, and then we'll actually see where it comes from in the passage. Really, the message in a single sentence is this. When you're doing something long and arduous and difficult, it really helps if you can keep your eyes fixed on the eventual payoff. That really helps. Uh, A great example of that occurred back in 1952 when a a woman who is an open ocean swimmer uh, decided to try to swim from the coast of Southern California to Catalina Island. Uh, This is a picture of another swimmer. This picture obviously isn't from the 50s, but making that same swim across the channel in Southern California. Uh, The story goes like this. In 1952, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim the 26 miles between the California coast and Catalina Island. As she began, she was flanked by small boats that watched for sharks and were prepared to help her if she got hurt or grew tired. After about 15 hours of steady swimming, a fog, a thick fog set in. Florence began to doubt her ability to finish the journey, and she told her mother, who was in one of the boats, that she didn't think she could make it. She swam on steadily for another hour before finally giving up, relenting, and asking to be pulled out of the water. As she sat in the boat, she found out that she had stopped swimming just one mile from her destination. 25 out of 26, she was that close. But she couldn't see how far away it was, and she gave up. Well, two months later, she decided to try again, having gotten so close the first time. During the second attempt, the same thick fog set in, but this time she succeeded. She made it all the way across and reached Catalina. She said that she kept a mental image of the shoreline firmly fixed in her mind while she swam. That's what she credited her success on the second attempt to. 
Even though she couldn't see the shoreline coming because the fog had blocked it just like the first time, she pictured it, she knew it was there, and she kept reaching for it, and that focus is what allowed her to disconnect from the cold and the exhaustion and the pain that she had endured for hours and hours and get through till the end. Well, in the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel, that's really very similar to what the Bible is gonna tell us about the Christian life. That same mindset is something that Jesus exhorts all of his followers to. Now, last Sunday, we ended chapter eight of Mark's gospel, and you'll recall that Jesus told us at that point that the Christian life um, is one in which grief precedes glory, that, that Christian life in this world is actually difficult before it gets better, and he calls his disciples to walk in the same way. Well, in this morning's passage with these two episodes that we're going to look at, Jesus gives his disciples a glimpse of that future glory in the transfiguration account, and he then urges them to keep that picture firmly in mind and reach for it as they live through the difficult aspects of following him in this life. This is how we faithfully follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the path that he walked and that he calls us to walk as well. And and just before we dive into the Bible text this morning, let me mention again, as I said last Sunday, we need this message today, Um, especially majority culture, American churches. We need to hear this message. We need to hear it because our past has not really prepared us for a life of gospel faithfulness in our immediate near future. And we talked about this last Sunday. What I meant by that was that we're, as, as majority culture American Christians, we're generally accustomed to living in a society that we kind of feel at home in, even though we're Christians. Uh, we are used to living around um, a society that looks at what the Bible teaches and largely speaking agrees with at least its broad outlines. You know, the things that the Bible would say are bad or wrong, most of the culture throughout American history has kind of agreed that, yeah, that's pretty bad stuff. And the the things that the Bible says are good and right, most people throughout the history of our nation will look at and say, yeah, that's right. And furthermore, people in general, even, even people who didn't consider themselves religious or Christian, would generally look at the Bible and acknowledge that it has some authority in these matters. That if nothing else, this is the good book and it, it, it speaks authoritatively when it says something is right and something is wrong. That's the culture that has been in place in one form or another in very broad outlines throughout American history. And that culture is fast, fast changing. Most of you are probably aware of the fact that it's changing, but the truth is it's changing so fast it's already largely gone, especially in places like the Pacific Northwest where we are. Increasingly, people do not even know what's in the Bible, and they certainly don't look at it as any kind of an authority on matters of right and wrong. And increasingly, our culture celebrates as good things that the Bible condemns as evil and accuses as evil things that the Bible says are beautiful and good. Now, gospel witness in that kind of an environment is gonna look different because the environment has changed. Our past experience has not helped prepare us for this Uh, gospel faithfulness in this future. But in these chapters of Mark's gospel, Jesus is trying to help us. He's really trying to kind of reframe for us, as it were, help us to see differently what a faithful gospel life looks like and feels like in the present and our near future as opposed to the past. He says it is a life of short-term pain for long-term gain. It's a journey through a wilderness in which it is not your home and you don't feel like you fit because you don't. But the long-term payoff is worth it. It's worth it because our future is certain and secure because of Jesus. Now, this message comes out in these two episodes. The first is the one we read a moment ago, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus, often simply referred to as the transfiguration. And the second that follows it is the story of Jesus healing a boy who is possessed by a demon. Now, that in and of itself is not all that significant, according to the Bible. Jesus is the Son of God. Of course, he has authority over demons, and we've seen him cast lots of demons out of people up to this point in Mark's narrative. What's significant about this particular episode is the way it is narrated, the emphasis is placed on faith, and we're going to see how these two fit together to form our message 
as we go through this. Let's begin right away in verse 1 of chapter 9, which um, right off the bat is probably the most confusing and controversial verse in this whole passage. So we'll spend a little bit more time at the beginning and then a little bit less on the latter parts. He says, Jesus says, I say to you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some of you aren't going to even die within this generation. Remember, he's speaking in the first century, 2,000 years ago. He says, within the time frame of this generation, some of you will see with your own eyes the kingdom of God when it comes with power. What does he mean by that? Does he mean like the world is going to end? Like he's going to come back as the conquering judge and, and, and destroy all evildoers and establish perfect righteousness the way that the Old Testament said he would? He was going to do all that within a couple of decades of when he spoke? That some of those people would be alive and see it? After all, that sure sounds like what he's talking about. Because if you remember from two Sundays, or last Sunday rather, when we talked about the end of chapter 8, he finished that by saying, Chapter 8, verse 38, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now remember, we talked about this extensively last week. We don't have time to recap all of it. But in last Sunday's sermon, we talked about how the Old Testament prophets said that in the future, God will send a Messiah. That was the Jewish term for it, a Savior, basically. And he will atone for the sins of his people and, and gather God's people together in the promised land. And he will judge all evildoers and establish perfect justice and a perfectly good world. He's going to do all of that. And from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets, it was a, a point way off in the future that this was all going to happen. And it sort of generally looked like it was all going to happen about the same time. And so when Jesus says, some of you, I will come as that conquering judge because I am the Messiah, and some of you will not taste death until you see it, it kind of sounds like he's saying, hey, the world's going to end before some of you guys in that first century are dead. Well, that obviously didn't happen. So how do we make sense out of this? Well, I think the most natural way to understand this statement is that, yes, at one level, Jesus does have his role as the universe's judge when he returns again in mind when he says this. And at another level, he has the account that we just read in mind, the transfiguration. In the immediate context, he talks about some day when he will return, and he says, some of you will not pass away until you see the kingdom coming with power. But then right away in verse 2, it says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went up on the mountain, and they saw this dramatic experience, this dramatic um, picture of his power. So the question is, in verse 1, when Jesus says, some of you won't die until you see the kingdom coming with power, is he talking about the final judgment of chapter 8, verse 38, or is he talking about the transfiguration of chapter 9, verse 2? And the answer is, yep. Yes, he is. And, and this is uh, what we talked about last Sunday. In fact, if you did not, I know several of you were on a retreat, if you did not get a chance to hear that sermon, I really want to encourage you to get on our website, go back and listen to it, because we explained at some length how biblical prophecy works. And all I'll say about it right now, just for the sake of time, is to say this. It, what looked like it was going to all be one event from the perspective of the Old Testament, by the time we get to Jesus' life, he makes it clear that it's two. It's two events. He comes once to accomplish the first part of that list, to atone for the sins of his people and gather God's people together. And then he will come later, his second coming, we call it, as the judge who will establish perfect righteousness. The transfiguration scene that we're going to look at here in a little bit more detail here in just a moment is like it's a down payment, as it were. It's, it's a glimpse, it's a foretaste of that day when he will come back permanently to end sin. So they're not two completely unrelated events. And the text naturally flows into clearly verses 2 and 3 are the fulfillment of that promise that some of you will not taste death until you see my kingdom and power. But that vision they got of Jesus, that image they got rather of Jesus in his power is just a foretaste of the fact that he really is the Messiah and he really will come with power. Why did he have to remind them of that? Because at the end of chapter 8 he had just talked about how his role was going to be to suffer and die. And they didn't have a category for that. They thought, you're the Messiah, and in our mind, the Messiah is supposed to conquer, not be conquered. And Jesus is over here saying, yeah, I am the Messiah, and I'm going to be conquered. And they're like, whoa, we don't have a category for that. And he says, no, that is what's going to happen, but I'm going to give you this picture so that you will know that I'm speaking the truth. 
fact, let's look at that picture as the narrative goes on of the transfiguration. Uh, the, the whole emphasis of the account is on the overwhelming power of the experience um, as the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in verse 1. Verses 3 in particular, you know, it talks about uh, he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's this picture of overwhelming spectacle, something that's clearly supernatural. And in verse 6, Peter is you know, almost kind of stammering and stumbling over himself because he's so awestruck. Uh, well, maybe we should like build a tent and hang out here for a while. This is awesome. And he's kind of foolish what he says because it is foolish. And it says specifically in verse six, they didn't know what to say because they were terrified. The image is, that's being painted here is that these guys, Peter, James, and John, who were seeing this, they were overwhelmed with this experience. Many times throughout the Bible, God's people will encounter angelic beings and they almost invariably just fall to their faces in mortal fear of the awe-inspiring spectacle. That's what's happening here. This was no little cartoon Jesus with a little glow around his head. This was an overwhelming experience of power. And what's more, you got two guys who shouldn't even be there that are suddenly there and they're walking around with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Two guys who had lived and finished their earthly lives centuries before. They've long been off the scene, and there they are in flesh and blood. This is not a vision or an image. He was literally changed before them, and Moses and Elijah are literally there, and they are literally dumbfounded to the point of speechlessness, except Peter, who always seems to have something to say. This is an overwhelming scene. Now, what's this business with Moses and Elijah? Why are they there and why is that significant? Well, for the disciples, it would have been incredibly significant. The appearance of Moses and Elijah is significant because it takes us all the way back to Old Testament prophecy. Uh, We studied as a church together the book of Deuteronomy last year. Many of you were part of that study. You may recall that we pointed out several spots within the book of Deuteronomy that are specifically pointing ahead to this future Messiah. Deuteronomy was written centuries and centuries before Jesus' time. One of those places is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 19. In fact, one of the clearest and strongest prophecies in Deuteronomy that God would send the Messiah. God says to his people, Back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, one day I will send another prophet like Moses. Moses was their leader at the time. He says, I'm going to send another prophet like Moses. This is the Messiah. And it goes on, God says that I will give this person my words. He's the one who will speak with absolute truth about who I am and and, and what my kingdom program is. And so to him, God tells his people, you shall listen. Listen to him because this future prophet like Moses will speak truthfully who I am. Well, God's people recognized for centuries later, rightly, that that is a messianic prophecy. That's the fancy way we say that. It's a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. And so, when Moses appears there talking to Jesus, and a voice comes out of heaven, clearly the voice of God the Father, and says, this is my son, referring to Jesus, Listen to him. This is all very clear and vivid and obvious allusions to the Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. He is the prophet like Moses who has my words, so listen to him. Because that's what I told you. Jesus is the guy I promised in Deuteronomy 18. That's what Moses' presence is saying. And by the way, why was it so important that they were instructed to listen to him? Weren't they already listening to him? Weren't they his disciples? Well, no, what's the immediate context? Back in chapter 8, Peter just taken Jesus out behind the woodshed and said, knock it off, what are you talking about? Stop saying this foolish stuff, you can't die. That's not what God wants. Jesus says, yes, it is. And then God the Father says, Peter, Jesus is right. Shut up, listen to him, he has my words. By the way, Elijah's presence signifies much the same thing. The reference here is the Old Testament prophet Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, in which God promised to send Elijah, in other words, an Elijah-like prophet. Elijah was a real guy. He had lived much earlier in the Old Testament era. He was already gone, but God promised he would send Elijah in the future just before the great and awesome day of the Lord, is how the Old Testament puts it. 
in the prophet Malachi. I will send, God says, Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. When I come, send my Messiah to judge. So Elijah must come before the Messiah comes. And Peter refers to this down in verse 11. It was the consistent teaching of the Pharisees. He says, how come the scribes say Elijah has to come first? Well, the religious leaders were teaching God's people that one day the Messiah will come and Elijah will come first because that's what the Old Testament said very clearly. Malachi chapter 4. So Elijah's presence was also a vivid and obvious visual cue to the disciples that Jesus was the long-promised Messiah. Listen to him. He is here. So you combine that with the spectacle of his power, and it was an overwhelming affirmation of who Jesus really was. And it's interesting as we move to the end of this encounter how Jesus brings this back to the idea of suffering. Of suffering. Suddenly, verse 8 Looked around, they saw no one, just with Jesus only. And his robes aren't brilliant white anymore. They're dirty and they're dusty and their sandals are caked with mud. And he's just kind of looking a little scraggly in the beard and he just looks like a regular guy. All the power's gone, the clouds are gone, the light's gone, the voices from heaven are gone, the two guys who should have never been there in the first place according to human understanding are gone. Everything's back to normal. The normal daily unimpressive, mundane grind of life. It literally was a mountaintop experience for those guys. And you can almost see them like, what was that? It was amazing. Can we do that again? No, we're not going to do that again. Because that kind of power, that was just a foretaste. What's Jesus' whole message been consistently through this passage? That's coming someday. But now, guys, it's about me suffering and dying. And by the way, it's going to be pretty bad for you too. Here we are back in the mundane. And so they ask him in verse 11, what is this business that the scribes say Elijah must first come? And Jesus uses that question to turn it back to the whole point of his own suffering. He turns it back to his own suffering. He uses it as a way to say that the world would violently reject him as well. By the way, he identifies the Elijah figure with John the Baptist. He says that's the Elijah God promised to send. And we know what happened to John the Baptist. We saw it earlier in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. He was executed. So the world violently rejected John. Jesus says it will violently reject me as well, even though that was totally inconsistent with the disciples' expectations of what the Messiah, God's Savior, would do, it was perfectly consistent with Old Testament passages that prophesied the suffering of God's conquering Messiah. For example, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the very first messianic prophecy in the entire Bible, where God says that a descendant of the woman, a human being, a uh, descendant of Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. He will ultimately conquer sin, but he himself will be wounded in the process. Yes, he will conquer, but he will also suffer. And much more clearly, passages like Isaiah chapter 53, which we read oftentimes around Easter time, where the Old Testament prophesies that God's conquering Messiah will nevertheless be a man of sorrows. That he will bear griefs. That he will be crushed and beaten. Jesus says this has always been the plan. So, what do you do with this transfiguration account? Why is it here? Jesus' transfiguration and all the details associated with it served as a moving glimpse of the power and majesty of Jesus for the disciples. It was a picture of his true identity as the universe's triumphant king. But then the sudden and abrupt return to normal and the way Jesus ended the discussion by focusing once again on his suffering, which was going to happen first, emphasized that he would have to go through the wilderness before he went on to victory. That's the road that he had to walk. Grief had to precede glory, and loss had to precede life. That's the road that God had called him to walk. But this train was going somewhere, and he wanted them to know that. Just like Florence Chadwick needed to keep that picture of the coastline in front of her when she couldn't see it because of the fog, he gave them a picture of that glorious future even though they wouldn't be able to see it in the midst of the suffering. Hold on to that picture. 
Hold on to that picture. The transfiguration is a foretaste of his future reign. It's like the aroma and the scent of a glorious kingdom that's almost here, but not quite yet. Not quite yet. It was like my New Year's Day. Uh, My wife has this recipe for these glorious cinnamon rolls. Unbelievably good. And they're like from scratch. Like you start with flour and stuff and real food. You know, it's kind of a trip. Which means you have to mix it and wait and let things rise. I don't even know all of what happens, but it just takes a long time. So we don't eat them often, which is probably good that we don't do that anyway. So they're kind of for special occasions, and she decided to make them on New Year's Day. And so, you know, you hear the mixer in the kitchen, and the kids and I are like, ooh, that's good sound. That's positive. Like, I'm starting to anticipate my future getting a lot sweeter, you know. And then they're rising, the dough is rising, and it has that kind of fresh bread dough sort of smell, and you go, ooh, that, that smells pretty good. And then eventually they get to the stage where they're actually baking, and now it starts to smell like cinnamon rolls throughout the whole house, and you're just like, ah. But you don't get to eat them yet, because they still have to do a couple more things. I mean, it's still going to be a little while. You know, it's going to be another hour or two or whatever it is. That's kind of the image here. That, that smell as they're baking, it's, it's, a, it's a foretaste of what is surely coming. It's the real thing. They're just not ready to be fully enjoyed yet. That's the, what the transfiguration was. It was a vision, sort of a scent of this glorious kingdom that was very much real, but it wasn't fully ready yet. He needed to die to redeem us from sin and gather God's people in first. Then that kingdom will come one day. And the disciples needed this picture of Jesus' future glory that they could hold on to in the midst of the suffering and the pain that they would endure before they got there. And the Bible calls this kind of holding on faith. That's the subject of this whole next encounter where Jesus heals this uh, young boy who is possessed by a demon. Go back one. Here we are. The scene is set up, and we'll move a little more quickly through this. Verses 14 and 18 really just kind of establish the scene. Uh, Jesus is coming down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Well, his other nine disciples are down there in a town, and they're waiting for Jesus to come back. And in the meantime, a guy whose young boy was possessed by a demon brought him to the disciples and said, can you guys do anything? Because it was heard that these guys could cast demons out of people. And they tried to cast the demon out of this little boy, and they failed. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, the disciples are in this very public argument with a group of the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And it's an argument, no doubt, about their failure to cast the demon out of the boy a failure that the Pharisees were delighted to seize upon to publicly make Jesus and his disciples um, look foolish, to publicly shame them and say, these guys are frauds, they're fakes. And so Jesus comes and says, what are you arguing about? They explain the scene to him, and in verse 19, he responds, and this is really where he identifies the problem. Jesus answered them, oh, faithless generation. Faithless generation. How long am I to be with you, and how long am I to bear with you? Bring me the boy. Jesus gets frustrated, ultimately, with his own disciples, but he uses this to expand it out to the vast majority of people who are alive in that day when he says, the problem here is there is no faith. Now, when we hear the word faith throughout this encounter, I want you to think about the word, the phrase rely on. Or, or bank on, or maybe the word trust. Because that's really what faith means here. Faith is to rely on. Jesus says, there's not enough relying on me going on in this generation. You see, the problem was that the disciples had been able to cast out demons before. Again, we saw this back in chapter 6 of Mark's gospel. Jesus kind of effectively deputized them you'll pardon the language, and and he basically said, yeah, you guys will have the authority to actually go preach the gospel and heal people and even cast out demons, and he sent them out for a while, and they did just that for a while. The very end of chapter six tells us that. So now they come back. They've got this reputation. Jesus is gone. The guy says, well, you cast the demon out of my son, and apparently the disciples were like, we got this, right? We got this. Don't worry. We've been deputized. We can handle this. I mean, you can almost see them peeling the shirts back and looking for the big S on their chests, right? We can handle this. We're special. We've been chosen. And so on the basis of their own perceived position and their past experience, they try to tell the demons to leave this boy, and the demon completely ignores them. And they're flummoxed. Jesus says the problem is there's not enough 
faith. There's not enough relying on in this generation. In other words, they were relying on the wrong person themselves. They were not relying on him. The next few verses, Jesus catches up with the father of the boy. How long has this been going on? It's been going on a long time. The demon actually physically harms this child. He's desperate for some help. And he says at the end of verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And the original language in verse 23 is very complex, but the the English translations of the Bible that we're reading and the uh, English Standard Version that I'm reading out of, they get it right. If you can, in reference to what you just said, if I can do anything, he says, listen, all things are possible to one who believes. Now, that's a statement we have to take in context. And we'll talk about this more in just a moment. In context, why was it not possible for the disciples to cast out the demon? Jesus says, you are a faithless generation. They didn't fully bank on God's power and his promises. They were apparently banking on themselves, their past experience, and their own position. Jesus says that the key element needed in order to find true life in him in the case of this boy who was having this demon away from him, the key element in in finding true life in him is to rely totally on who he is as son of God and what he has done in conquering our sins on the cross. So, I love the father's response, verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. How honest is that? And how real is that? It sounds like a contradiction on the surface. I believe, but I don't believe. But he's, I, I do believe, but I'm struggling. Would you help me? You know what's interesting to me about this? Jesus does not rebuke the guy for his evidently weak faith. Despite having shown plenty of evidence just a couple of verses earlier that he'll rebuke anyone and quite frankly everyone for their lack of faith, he just took a whole generation to task for not having enough faith. But he doesn't take this guy to task. Clearly, he saw something about the man's faith that was genuine, although weak. Because genuine, real faith can still grow. It can still grow. That's the process of what we call spiritual maturity or Christian growth. I'm banking on Jesus, but I'm still not sure I can fully bank on Jesus, and I come to trust him more and more. That doesn't mean my earlier faith was inauthentic. It just means it was weak and it needs to grow. That was apparently the faith of his father. But it was still, even in its weakened state, qualitatively different than the faith displayed by his disciples because they had faith in themselves. They had faith in their position, in their past, in their history, in their accomplishments, and in their abilities. But this father's coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do anything. Would you please help? Faith is relying totally on God. Well, the account ends. The crowds are coming around. Jesus, again, not wanting to make a huge spectacle, just takes the boy aside, heals him, It's a very violent exorcism, so much so that when the demon's gone, people think the boy's dead. Jesus lifts him up. He's alive. It's wonderful. It's a miraculous healing. And then later that night, here's how the account ends. The faith of the disciples is brought front and center again. They ask Jesus when they're alone with him, how come we could not cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. By anything but prayer. A quick note on the text. Um, Some of your Bibles may say prayer and fasting. Uh, And if your Bible doesn't have the words and fasting in the text, then it has those words in a footnote off in the margin. And that's because some later copies of the New Testament ancient documents had those words included, but the earliest and best manuscripts don't have them. Plus, fasting has nothing to do with what was going on in this passage, so it's very clearly a couple of words that were added at some point later, which is why they've been taken out and put in the margin. But prayer, on the other hand, fits very well with Jesus' main point. Why? Because prayer emphasizes my reliance on God rather than me. And that's what this whole thing is all about. Faith, relying on. Who am I relying on? Who am I banking on? Who am I depending on? The disciples couldn't cast the demons out because they were relying on their status rather than praying and asking God to do what only he could do. So when we read this account of the casting the demon out of this boy, what are we supposed to take away? Well, the point 
is that the answer to the problem the passage poses is faith. Full reliance on Jesus to do what only he can do. Now, why does Mark make this point now? What does that have to do with the transfiguration and this whole like wilderness journey and Jesus is going to suffer and all that stuff that we've been talking about? Where does this call to faith fit into the midst of this? Well, the message up to this point, I think, has been simply this. The life of a Jesus follower is one of suffering in which grief precedes glory. We've already seen that. That was mostly chapter 8 last week. Now, though, he says, the journey through the wilderness of grief in this life can feel long and arduous and difficult. And the key to staying the course is holding on, that's faith, holding on, relying on, and banking on the sure knowledge of the glorious future that awaits us and pressing on toward that goal. Now, this is a very different way of looking at the Christian life than a lot of people have in our world today. There's a phrase some of you may have heard of before. Maybe it's a new phrase to you. It's called prosperity theology. Anybody ever heard that term before? There's kind of a, a, an obvious and a less obvious version, or what I sometimes call a hard form of prosperity theology and a soft form. The hard form of prosperity theology is pretty easy to spot. Usually you see it on guys who are on your TV screen parading around in three-piece silk suits with their 800 numbers constantly flashing across the bottom of the screen that you're supposed to call and give them a credit card number, give them a lot of money, okay? And the idea is if you give me money that's supporting my wonderful God-ordained ministry, which is all a crock, by the way, and the money you lose, God will give to you if you have faith. He'll not only give you that money back, he'll give you even more which is always fascinating that the prosperity theology preachers tell everybody else to trust God for riches, but they don't have to trust God. They just need to tell people to give them money, but that's a whole different point. The bottom line is these guys, they're crooks. They're hucksters. They're fakes, and it doesn't matter how many Bible verses they pull out of context and plaster on the screen or how many people shout amen to what they're saying. They're not preaching what's in the Bible, and it's pretty clear that they're not preaching what's in the Bible. I mean, The way that Mark, in his gospel, links Jesus' promise of sacrifice so closely with his exhortations to faith just makes it so obvious a small child could see that this is not prosperity theology. In the Bible, faith does not result in avoiding the costs of following Jesus. Faith gives me the ability to endure the costs of following Jesus as I fix my mind on the sure, certain future that I'm trusting him to provide. So clearly, when prosperity theology preachers get up there and tell you to just have faith and your sickness will go away, or have faith and you'll get rich and all your problems will go away, clearly it's obvious they're not talking from the Bible. It's sad that so many people still listen to them because they are crooks. But anybody who's got a little bit of discernment can tell the difference. It's pretty easy to spot. But now there's also a soft form of prosperity theology. It's soft because it's more diffused. It's less obvious, and because of that, it's almost more dangerous. Like, nobody grabs a bottle of of poisonous chemical off their shelf and just starts drinking it, but it's almost like the poison is diluted in the water supply, so I'm drinking it all the time, and I'm not even aware of it because it's so diluted I don't taste it. Soft prosperity theology often looks like when I, as a Christian, and I've done this, you probably have too, but I've done this, hit a point in my life where another hit comes and I'm at the end of myself and I say, God, why? How could you let this happen to me? I'm doing everything I can. I'm trying to trust you. I'm trying to read my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm, I'm trying to believe in you and honor you. I'm, I'm, I'm tithing money to my church. I'm doing everything. I'm trying to be a good you know, mom or dad or kid or take care of my family. And on another hit, how could you let this happen? I've been there. But here's the thing as I look back on those times. Every time I say to God, how could you let this happen, whether those words actually come out of my mouth or whether that's just what I'm thinking inside, I'm tipping my hand, aren't I? I'm showing you what, what the, where the cards are really at in my heart. In my heart, I believe that if I'm honoring God and, and, and loving him and worshiping him, 
he will make some of these bad things go away, or he'll at least minimize them. It's a soft version of prosperity theology. Now, the minute I say that, I go, well, no, I don't believe that, but I think I do believe it sometimes because I expect that God is going to smooth my road through life if I honor him. But that's prosperity thinking. That's not in the Bible. In fact, we pointed out at the beginning of this study that Mark uh, got most of his information about the episodes he's recording from Peter, who was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was an eyewitness to all of these things. Peter himself later wrote several books in the New Testament. One of them is the book we refer to as 1 Peter. He said this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, to this, meaning suffering, he's talking to us as Christians, to this you have been called. It's not something shocking or surprising that happens. In fact, he says elsewhere in this book, don't be surprised when the difficult time comes along. This is your calling. This is the Christian life. Not only are we not to be surprised when suffering comes, we should be shocked if it doesn't come because it's just part and parcel of the Christian life. Okay, to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus walked to Calvary. We follow a king who went to the cross. That's the subtitle of this whole study of Mark's gospel. Not to the palace, not to the throne, to the cross. And the Christian life is not one where we sit back and watch Jesus go to the cross for us and say, wow, thank you for going there so that I don't have to. And then that's it. The Christian life is one where we watch Jesus go to the cross for our sins so that we say, I didn't have to go to the cross for my sins. Now I pick up my own cross, whatever God may call me to suffer for in his name, and I follow in his footsteps. Footsteps in which grief precedes glory and loss precedes life. That's our calling. The Bible couldn't be more plain about it. It says it over and over and over again in dozens of different ways despite how we've put the prosperity spin on it. That's not what the Bible teaches. It never has been. Elsewhere in Peter's Gospel, chapter four, he says, because Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Life in this world is supposed to be painful and difficult. I just gotta expect that. You don't swim 26 miles in the open ocean in comfort. If you're going to make the journey, you just know it's going to hurt. Well, if we're going to make the journey to heaven, the Bible says, you just know it's going to hurt. That's how it works. Faith is not the means in the Bible by which Christian people avoid suffering and receive a good life. Faith is the means by which Christian people pay the short-term costs that a God-rejecting world will extract from us as the price for swearing our allegiance to Jesus and not to the world. I fully admit that was a run-on sentence and I apologize. So if you'll bear with me, let me say that again because I think it's the heart of what the Bible's getting at. Faith is the means by which Christian people pay the short-term price in this life. The price that will be extracted from us by a world that has rejected God as the cost of us having sworn allegiance to Jesus rather than to the systems and the values of this world. The life of a disciple of Jesus is that we keep paying those costs, gladly even, because we know what is certainly coming, an eternal future in the presence of God, which the New Testament book of Romans tells us isn't even worth comparing to the wilderness journey you have to go through to get there first. Now, to live that way, you have to be really sure that that future is coming, don't you? Could you imagine if they had blindfolded uh, Florence Chadwick and just motored her out in the ocean somewhere in the middle of the night and threw her in the water and said, start swimming that way. And she's like, so are we anywhere near Catalina? Oh, I don't know, just trust us, figure it out. And she starts swimming and the fog sets in. She's like, I'm not even 100% sure I'm in the right place. Do you think that might have made it a little difficult to keep going? She knew it was in front of her. That's why she kept going. In order to live this way, you've got to know that that certain future is, in fact, certain. So how can you know? How can you know? How can I be certain that the glorious life that Jesus has promised me for all eternity is really in my future? I think the best answer the Bible gives us to that question is the gospel itself. I know because Jesus paid it all.
That's how I know. When he hung on the cross because he died in my place, almost the last words he spoke were, it is finished. It's done. Sin has been paid for. The ransom has been met. It is over. Sin no longer has to keep people away from God and in eternity with him because I've paid that penalty. I've paid that debt. It's done, and that settled, finished work of Christ means that if I am relying on him to forgive my sins, my future is certain. I know because he died in my place and then he rose again from the dead to the kind of eternal life that is ahead of every one of us as followers of Jesus. In short, I know because the tomb was empty on Easter morning. That's why I know. Because that guy died and that guy lived again and people don't do that. That was God. So that future, that is the certain rock upon which I can place all of my hope, and I know that that future will be so good it's worth every bit of self-denial and suffering I may be required to endure in the meantime. We're going to continue for the next couple of chapters, finishing out chapters 9 and 10 with this major theme of the cost of discipleship. Let's try to bring this passage with these two scenes together, this exhortation, this great news, this glimpse of future glory, along with the exhortation to hold on to it by faith as the way of the Christian life, by returning to where we started. And that's the observation that for those of us who are majority culture American Christians, our past has not really prepared us for our future. Our past of serving God and living for him has not really prepared us for what it's going to be like to live for him in all likelihood in our even immediate future. As majority culture Americans, our expectations are often some version of working hard and and being true to God as best I can, taking care of my family, doing a good job at work, and so forth, will entitle me to at least a somewhat decently comfortable life, and certainly will entitle me to be seen by other people as upstanding, respectable citizens and fellow members of society whether that's at school or the office or my neighborhood or anywhere. But Jesus reframes these expectations. He says, no, it actually kind of looks like this. My followers shouldn't expect those kinds of things from a world that has rejected me. He tells us that the world hated him, so we'll similarly hate any who follow him. But then he also tells us that's okay. Like That's okay, because we can stay humble and we can stay gracious even as we pay those costs. We don't have to get angry or revile in return when we are reviled and misunderstood and called all sorts of nasty names if that's what it comes to. Because we know that these are small prices to pay for the eternity that is set before us in God's presence. I think gospel faithfulness in the near future for us in this country is going to look a lot more like it does in other parts of the world where Christianity is far less welcome than it has historically been in the U.S. Living my life in total allegiance to Jesus, unashamed of everything that he teaches, and I mean everything, not just the parts of what he teaches that don't offend my culture, but unashamed of all of what he teaches, unashamed of how he talks about sin and God's holiness, unashamed at how he talks about the need for redemption and a price to be paid, unashamed at the promise of future glory for all eternity in heaven, unashamed at the value of living a life of sacrifice, unashamed of what he says about marriage and about divorce and about gender and sexual identity, unashamed about everything that he says, and willing to endure whatever prices I have to pay, be they small or large, because I'm certain that the only thing I truly can't live without is the one thing nobody can take from me. And that is, I know where I'm going, and it's secure. It's secure because Jesus did it, and it's done. It's done. I'd like to end with a simple question of where our hope is placed. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you haven't submitted your whole life to him and to the authority of the Bible as, as your ultimate Lord and Savior, 
then I would hope that you would see that this is what the Bible is, is sort of begging you to ask, to look at and, and self-evaluate. Do you have any hope that is strong enough to pay a price for? That makes life worth living no matter what it takes? What is your hope placed on? And how long will it last? Even under the best of circumstances. And frankly, for those of us who are Christians and have submitted our lives to Jesus and we are seeking to rely fully on him every single day and for all eternity, are we living for the greatest joy in the universe or are we settling for lesser here and now things? As a church community, we want to find our hope and joy in Christ alone. And I want to encourage us to leave this morning and go this week, get involved in our community life groups and our Bible study groups or meet around kitchen tables and, and coffee shop tables. And as a church family, let's talk about these things. How do we rely on a certain future in this day and age now and where is our hope placed? Would you pray with me? Father, we want to place our hope exactly where you've told us to place it. And yet we recognize that the idea of living completely sold out, unreservedly for you, and totally trusting you with everything, that idea is sometimes far more romantic and it's far more exciting to talk about than it is to actually live because living it really just means the daily grind. It means going through life where we don't feel like we fit in. It means living in a place that's not our home and that is difficult to do. It means denying ourselves. It means being willing to be misunderstood or even mischaracterized despite our best efforts to humbly and graciously set the record straight. And for some people, it may mean even greater sacrifices than that. It may cost us relationships or opportunities for advancement. Who knows what you may call us, what price you may call us to pay. So Father, that's the, daily, that's the dailiness. That's the grind. That's the drudgery. And I pray that you would make us here at Harvest a people of faith who look forward to what you have accomplished, keep it firmly in mind, and then continue by your grace to strive for that goal, knowing that the goal is secure, not because of our faithfulness or what we can do to achieve it, but because what you have already done to bring it about. And I thank you for that solid rock of faith. I pray that it would animate and illuminate our life together as a church, and that you would use this congregation of regular people who love you and are seeking our best to live for you to draw many other people to yourself. For your holy name's glory, we pray.